Welcome to Storytime with Tommy. I am your host, Tommy Desmond, a licensed agent, licensed builder, and active real estate investor in Southeast Michigan. Yay. There are a few things I like more than having some drinks with friends and talking about real estate. And for the next hour or so, that is exactly what I intend to do. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do that at TommyDesmond.com. That's T-O-M-M-Y-D-E-S-M-O-N-D.com. Do you like that, Jeremy? Love it. Yeah. Now, nothing in this podcast is intended as legal advice. If you wish to apply an idea to your situation, then that is on you, my friend. Seek appropriate legal counsel. I also wish to thank Jeremy Burgess, the founder of Renegade Detroit Investors, the producer of this and several other fine podcasts. Jeremy, tell us about RDI and how to get a hold of you. Hello, folks. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club or meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. Subscribe and never miss a meeting. I'll see you guys there. Ever. Or he'll get really angry. Don't make me angry. He'll throw things all around his garage. It's really violent. So tonight is the fourth of 16 magical episodes. And again, I have with me one of the true savages of the investment community in Metro Detroit, Mr. Josh Sterling from Epic Property Management. Josh has amassed a portfolio of over 200 units of apartments and single-family properties in Downriver. In addition to being the founder of Epic Property Management, a husband and a new father, he is the man who has revealed a killer model that I'm working myself at the moment of flipping properties to myself via blanket portfolio refis. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah, hopefully it makes me rich just like you and I can have a plane. Ten grand, I'll teach you all about it. Oh, really? <laughs> now he's a guru. Wait for that course but to come But wait, out. I charge 20 grand all day on my website. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. My other guest this fine evening is a scotch from the Glen Morangy Distillery, the Quinta Raban. Glen Morangy is hands down one of my favorites. Quinta is a wine region in Portugal, and for this expression, the 16 men of Tain age this whiskey in an American bourbon barrel for about 10 years, after which they move it to a Portuguese port wine cask for an additional two years, so it's actually a 12-year 12 12 year scotch. The scotch is clear but intense. Uh, the color is really, really vibrant. It's almost a rose-red color, and personally, I get a really heavy chocolate nose, some bright citrus, maybe a little mint. It's pretty rich. Uh, it's a fairly strong whiskey, and I personally put a put a bit of water in it just to release a little bit of the action. Makes the citrus pretty pronounced, which is something Glen Morangy is pretty known for. So that's pretty much my drink for the evening. And uh, my my guest Josh here, he's sitting down and he's casually drinking wine. I don't think he's as much of an alcoholic as I am. So it's more of a passive endeavor for you. That was a pretty impressive description there. You like that? (laughs) That was good. You dig all that? My wine is red. Yes. I like my wine like my women. Wet. (laughs) Damn! Boom! It was intense. Well, I was gonna true. lead I with mean, that. I, you know, I the like second to, episode's always the better episode. <laughs> I, I, I like to class up my drinking by calling it tasting instead of doing shots, <laughs> which is the way it works. The more expensive the alcohol, the less it's a shot, and the more that it's a tasting. Plus, it comes in fancy, tiny, weird glasses. Oh, they look so good. Yeah, you know, it's like a tiny wine glass with Smurf-sized shots in it. But <laughs> this is a very, very good alcohol. It's a Diageo product, so Jeff. Rabinowitz probably wouldn't approve, but hey, you're not a drunk when it's in a fancy glass. You're sophisticated. <laughs> That's okay? the way it is. That's exactly how I'm it works. Eccentric, sophisticated. <laughs> Thanks, Ma. <laughs> it's a fancy bottle. Don't knock over the fancy bottle, son. So as I'm hanging out with my fancy bottle and Josh has his fancy glass, we're going to sit down and talk about uh, some of the new projects that he's working on, which. Uh, 
if you've been around the Metro Detroit investment community for a minute, you're probably aware of Josh as one of the guys who has promoted the concept of purchasing uh, rehabs and then flipping them to himself via refi, uh, you know, taking them, rehabbing them up, making them really nice. So when they reappraise, they reappraise at a higher value. And then uh, you can turn around, refi them out, get the cash out to, pri- buy, you know, to pay off the, the private money that acquired the property. Um, you know, and then you still get to hold it for cash flow. And you've got a, a, a good property with a low capital expense moving on into the future. Um, but, Separate from that, I mean, you're up to, what, about 207 units, you said now? And yeah, you're about to close on some, some more. Yep. But you're also doing, in addition to that, now you've migrated into new construction as well. Right. And that's kind of the new, the new avenue that you're exploring. And how, what, how did that transition happen? I mean, a lot of these guys that were probably listening to this, they're, they're doing flips here and there, and they've thought about new builds. But now this is a pretty major transition. And how did that occur for you? What happened? So... Over the last few years, the, the market's been allowing us to pick up uh, typically bank-owned houses uh, that are in need of work and go in and do a nice rehab, add a bunch of value, and then pull that capital back out. And that's been nice. Um, but as you know, with the market uptick in the last, say, 12 to 18 months, that's get, getting tougher and tougher to do. So You mean finding the deals? Finding there. the deals yeah. to do this. You know, there's still a few. In fact, we'll close on a single family tomorrow. We still do a little here and there. Um, but it's much harder to, to do that on a larger scale. It's not that big wealth of foreclosed properties, and because right. people, a lot of people have been flipping houses now, so there's you know competition. I and, miss the days when you could go blindfolded and just pick a property off the MLS and and. Uh, well, know, in, in fairness, in your market, it's probably 100 percent your own fault because you already flipped them all. <laughs> so you really can't complain about everyone else. You're the one who did all that. No, it's their fault. <laughs> what do you mean their fault? There is no one else. It's so, just you. So we, uh, so to transition, so we, we were looking for a way to scale this and, and, you know, keep adding the number of units that we were accustomed to adding. And it was just drawing up and getting harder and harder. And then it got to the point where we realized that for what the, our, our natural model has always been the highest end rental that I think you're going to see. I, I would put it up against any other rental. I mean, we're going granite, stainless, and you know, six panel doors, hardwood throughout. Mm-hmm. I mean, nice, nice rentals. And yeah. That remodel is going to take me anywhere from twenty to twenty-five, sometimes thirty thousand dollars. So as prices got higher and higher, I started to realize that I was into this nineteen, say, fifties built house for maybe it got up to. A, you know, ninety to a hundred, hundred and ten thousand dollars, somewhere you know in those ranges, that starts to get to the point where I'm I'm thinking about maybe I can build here and it not wouldn't only be from nineteen fifty. It wouldn't be from nineteen fifty, so I won't have that functional obsolescence. I won't have those small rooms. I won't have those those closed off kitchens. All those things that I guess were a good idea back at the time. They're not, you know, obviously that's not the, the taste people's desire changed. now. You know, even simple things like tiny closets in bedrooms. That's if you know, if we do everything we can do to a house, all the money we can put into it, as nice as it can be, my biggest complaint that I get if we don't lease a property, it's typically the bedrooms are too small. Mm-hmm. People are used to a big bedroom set and they can't do it. Well, ten by ten. I can't fix that. So I've always had that desire. Plus, on the capex side, we put that big remodel in, but it's capital expense, which would be large costs that have to be paid out for repairs, right? Upfront costs in this, and even though we're putting in a bunch of money here. I'm 
I'm not going to ever be able to do everything. So that driveway might be 10 years into its useful life. That roof might be five years in. That furnace might be a few. We, no, that's we don't that's 25 those. grand worth of stuff that's not sexy or fun. You know? So I started to realize with it's just a natural continuation of our model if we just start building these things from the ground up. And through a little research, I started to realize that if we can hit budget numbers that we had in mind, then these things are viable as rentals, even at new construction. So that's kind of what, what pushed us into it and, and what really gave us the, the oper- we, we, we decided we'll take the chance. We'll take a, basically a, a test run and we built three of them this year. Okay. And also by building, you limit some of the hidden costs that can show up when you get a property. You don't necessarily know what's going on until you tear a wall out. All of a sudden, you realize you got, oh, I've got asbestos. I've got this. I've got that. And none of those hidden costs exist. So I didn't know that I would like that, but uh, I don't want to rehab houses anymore. (laughs) No more variables. The biggest variable that has hit us, at least on these three that we built, was during the excavation process on one of the houses. You found Hoffa. I found No. (laughs) Like that shit sounds lucrative, bro. You could sell Hoffa. That, that'd, that'd be a positive. No, the uh, the excavation uh, company they hit um, what they called bad dirt. Mm-hmm. For whatever that means, it for us it meant they couldn't put. It was too the, sandy. Something was with it. Yeah, something was was mm-hmm. not right with the, the dirt they hit. And um, you got to do soil borings next. So time. they well, <laughs> these were all houses that were old structures that were torn down too. So that might be a factor, but. What ended up happening was we had to put a little bit more footing in, or we had to do wall, or we were going to do footing, or something like that. Anyways, yeah. ended up costing us like an extra eight hundred bucks in concrete work. But that was the biggest variable that we have had. Otherwise, you, it's exactly as planned because there's really not a lot that we found to to go wrong. There's, there's not no that, errors to fix because right. nothing exists. There's yet. not the oh, I thought we were going to fix that furnace for two hundred dollars. No, we got to put one in for two grand. It's I know we're putting a furnace in, so there's no question, and it's really, really nice. So and I, you're still spending the same hundred and ten that you would have spent before. No, uh, we're building a little bit bigger houses. So okay. again, I didn't realize this until well into the process. But as the market has continued to go up as we're doing this, uh, that same uh, you know 1950s house that we would put the remodel into, we're on a square per square foot basis because those are a touch smaller. Those are usually around a, a thousand or so square feet. If we're into that for 110 grand, that's $110 a square foot. Mm-hmm. It just so happens we're building brand new for 90 a square foot right now. Yeah. Um, which should be a touch lower. We, you know, you always learn a few things. So we've got a few grand in errors per house. Um, just part of the learning curve, but we're building on a per square foot basis cheaper than we're rehabbing old houses and we're getting a brand new product. I mean, you can't beat it. Yeah. You no, know, granted, we are going up in, in size, so that always helps. But uh, it really is starting to it, the the lights uh, the light bulb went off, and uh, I can see this model really working. So, from the existing infrastructure that you already had, being a you know with your rehab machine, I mean, and I mean it was a machine at this point. You were doing a ton. Right. I mean, you were you were your own comps for a lot of the areas that you're working in. So, I mean, how did that machine translate to? The new construction. I mean, did that require team adjustments? What I mean, what what did you need to do to yeah, so make I the transition? That you went out, dug hole, poured concrete in ground, put sticks on it, drywalled it, and you had a new house. And it turns out that's not how it goes at all. Wait, so, no. Actually, this not. That's not how it works. There's a lot of back and forth in there. So my my dad uh, has always been in the trades. So out in California. So Your dad's a builder. He's a builder. And he has and he been out yeah. in California, which means nothing in Michigan. That's a different um, planet. 
Totally. It just means you have to put steel beams in everything. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so back when we were coming up with this idea, um, he agreed to come out and give it a shot for the first you know, the first round, see how it goes. So he came out last June. We got going. He had to get a Michigan builder's license and start over here. They, do, they don't recognize, you know, states, yeah. as you know. Um, so and, – and there's actually a little bit – Quite a few differences in how they do things, even yeah. the order of things that are done, and even what they call things out there versus here. A lot of things can be different. So, so it was a little learning process. But what I I didn't realize, and and had he not come out here, this would not have happened. This would I. It was a lot lot deeper than I thought. So he was his entire function was to oversee the new construction and nothing else. So we. Starting from excavation, um, the back and forth that happened between the excavation, then the basement wall guys, then the backfill, then the you know framers come out, and then the basement wall guy comes back and puts the you know basement egress in, and then the you know it's just there's so much back and forth and coordinating these trades, and then inspections on top of that, and and you fail an inspection, and I mean there's a lot of moving parts that I'm missing. I don't even know still what they all are. So he's been overseeing, and that's all just that. at the foundation inspection. This is before oh. you're putting anything on the property. Oh, I'm telling you, I mean there yeah. was so much that went into this. This you is know? just site prep. I thought you put a you put a driveway in. We usually tear a driveway out, put a driveway in. Oh no, there's you got to. You know, have the the rough grade done and then cut the driveway. And then, I mean, there's just so much to every part that I had no idea that went into it. Mm. So, yeah, it's a lot different than, uh, I'll tell you what, when we hit drywall, I finally felt like I was home. When we, these things were drywalled, I'm like, all right, I know what we're doing now. Yeah. That, now, now we're in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I mean, there's so many moving parts. And that's all the not sexy, ugly, hidden stuff that nobody really, you know, cares about. But right. the reality is, is it's all under there. And if it's not, your house doesn't work. And then right. you've got issues. So. Yeah. Yeah. And these were, are you talking vacant lots or were you doing demo on existing no, property? No, these were, so... My understanding is back uh, at some point over the last few years, the uh, the local municipality had torn down structures that needed to be removed and had then marketed lots to, to people and to encourage new builds, which is, I think, So they were smart. vacant, but they were previously built previously upon? Previously built upon. So, so there we, was problems. We took over as a vacant lot. Okay. Uh, in fact, we tied into existing sewer taps in some cases. That were, okay. The tap was still good. So They pulled out um, all the foundation and everything, the yeah, footings the that thing, were there? Right. Okay. Which, But you really don't know that, and I guess we could always hit some old uh, footings or some old foundation or whatever, mm. but, but yeah, we, we were building on lots where there were houses. Okay. Don't they back? Don't they fill that with like clay or some crap? Well, like I think that, that was part of our bad yeah. dirt issue is they don't fill it with necessarily the right material. Well, sometimes they just fill that. it with construction debris. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times. I mean, probably not if the city was doing it, but a lot of times during a regular demo, if somebody's just trying to clear the lot, you'll get construction debris buried in the in the property. So then, when you go to actually excavate, what you've got is, I mean, that's that wouldn't be bad dirt, but you've got. Busted up concrete, you got aggregate, you got a bunch of bullshit in there. So yeah. it's not uncommon. And that's one of the we find all kinds of hidden stuff. We'll find, uh, you know, oil tanks is a big one in this area that old oil tanks that are still buried out there. Cars. We pulled a car out of a yard, Volkswagen Beetle. That was all, and we didn't know. Who buried a car? The, the guy who owned the house before was a guy that fixed cars. And in the 70s, when the house sold, he had like a little garage set up in the back and he. It was easy. he couldn't get rid of it because of some. I think it had something to do with the uh, lead in the fuel, lead lead fuel at the time. So there was a, a higher cost for the disposal of the vehicle. But at the end of the day, how it 
what he did was he buried the whole freaking car. You didn't know. I mean, you look at it. It looks like a bunch of grass. No problem. Then you go out there and you start trenching out. There's a car in the Volkswagen. Ground. Yeah. <laughs> And it could have, it could have got score. worse. It could have actually, well, not that kind of score. I mean, scrap value maybe, but it could have brownfielded, but we got lucky. It wasn't a brownfield issue, but we haven't found any cars yet. No, give it time. This is Detroit. <laughs> How much you want for Hoffa? I'm just saying, if I, if I paid you all cash, close yeah, when I'm you want. I'm from wanted. New Jersey. I know people who pay a lot of money. <laughs> I thought he was in Giant Stadium. We've been tearing that thing up for years. <laughs> just, sorry. That was a joke. Everybody, don't take it seriously. Seriously, especially New Jersey. So, anyway, what are the capital differences like as far as the actual financing of this? Like a rehab versus this? Is, there, is the financing a different structure or is it an expansion of the same? So, it's, it's essentially the same model. You either come in with your own cash or private money to do the, for us at least, to do the, uh, the construction phase or what would be the rehab phase, right? We, we treat it all the same. Mm-hmm. And then once you're done, for our model right now, we're doing a build-to-rent model. So we plan to keep these in our portfolio. Um, and we'll put them together in a package and blanket refi them and put long-term financing on the deal. So it's basically the same capital structure, just a touch more capital into it. It's probably like doing a house more in a, a city like you're familiar with working in, mm-hmm. um, but but still not anything unobtainable. Uh, most people that are out here doing this every day could do the same model. Now, are you for these particular ones, are you financing them all yourself with internal capital We're or did you get private money? Partly internal capital and partly private money on them. Okay, so. and was the pitch different to the private lenders is it easier harder the same same and it's the same people that we've worked with so it's really you know it's it's a pretty they they know what our model is and they're comfortable with that okay now what about separate from the financing what about the appraisal side like when you appraise these properties is there a difference how you're dealing i mean is are you expecting to appraise higher i mean is there how does does that factor well i mean obviously you're you're comping it out and you probably could talk quite a bit about that but you're looking for similar era built houses so that's actually part of the challenge here there's not a lot of new construction going on um we're either we're either really smart or we're really stupid because we're one of the only people building new houses right now. You're right? still making your own comps, <laughs> right? You, you so, weren't you weren't happy just fixing up existing neighborhoods. You're making new ones. So way to be difficult, the, Josh. Part of the problem is we're out there and we're there are very few new built in the last say two three years, uh, even new built houses to go off of. So a little bit of it's a flyer, but you do have a rough idea based on a price per square footage and whatnot. So, the, for example, the house we're building is uh, is coming out in the probably two fifteen to two twenty range when it's all said and done. Okay, and in your market, how big is that? <laughs> what are we talking square footage? We're at we're building the same. We're boring. We're building the same house over and over and over again. So identical floor plans. Everything's the same. Doesn't change. Uh, and it's seventeen hundred and twenty seven square feet. Did you just? Is that a plan that you just got off the shelf and said this is the one we're rolling we, with? Or? No, the the city we're building in is very very particular about what you can build down to the number of shutters on the house and everything. Really? Um, oh yeah. So we started with the plan that we liked, and then we turned it into one that they liked. Is kind of how that went. Uh, but we like it too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just not exactly what we had in mind at first. And we started with uh, what we did is we got a you know off the shelf model plan. Took it to an architect we'd work with for additions and for you know small things in the past, and had him tweak that to meet the city's requirement. It was a lot of back and forth okay. uh, until we came up with one that worked for everybody. So the city interfacing seems to be a larger component 
for a new build than it yeah. would be with at a least re- in this re- particular. Reno. Yeah, it was a lot, a lot more going on with the city than uh, than I thought it would be. They really have a lot of say. What okay. was the city not like about what you were doing? Uh, there's a lot of restrictions that that I mean, there, everyone knows there's going to be easements in in place and and certain you know uh, height requirements and things like that. But they had restrictions down to um, one that got us in trouble was your garage cannot be more than 50% of the frontage of your house. Yeah. Well, when you have a 50-foot wide lot with an 8-foot easement on one side and a 4-foot easement on the other side, mathematically, we couldn't find a way to get a garage to fit in a two-car garage. So we ended up with a one-car garage. Our option was one-car garage or detach it and move it back behind, which I wasn't too into. So we ended up with that. And It's the monster garage problem. Yeah. How, how is the that? monster garage a problem? Hey, somebody explain this to me. We had uh, we actually in, in Troy we had an ordinance that was passed. They called it the Monster Garage Ordinance. What uh, and that I I don't know if Troy was the one that started it, but it, well, it was damn uh, them. Yeah, it, it, well, there was an issue with I mean because a lot of times we would leave there'd be open space that they would leave in for people to uh, have a. a, a a different, a separate structure, uh, a lateral structure like a garage would conform to a different set of building requirements, right? So what we had was there was a particular case of one individual in the city who basically conformed to all of the requirements but rode all the lines of the requirements and built exactly to the requirements. And the way that they were written, they were not written under the assumption somebody would build a massive monster garage. And this guy built... A monster garage. It ended up being larger than his house, and it had multiple stories, and it was like huge. And it was in the middle of this Troy suburban neighborhood, and it pissed everybody off. But it wasn't actually against the law because he did everything conforming. But the net result was is that now in the middle of this neighborhood, they've got basically a commercial building in this backyard because he rode all the lines. As a result of that... <coughs> They created the Monster Garage Ordinance, where they they dramatically reduced uh, the the they they basically tied the garage sizes and lateral building sizes to a ratio that's a function of the house size, which it wasn't before. Before it was just independent and it had its own set of requirements. Now they tied it to the property size, so everything has yeah, to be a function. But of that. modern houses, they two people, two cars, they want to park. Right. I mean, come on, man, like. Well, now we're dealing. I think there's some middle ground here. Now, well, now we're, now they're dealing with the fallout in the opposite direction, in that now they have to figure out. Now they went too far to the extreme of protecting these requirements. And now people who have fairly rational requests now are getting caught up in it. So it's, it's kind of. It's where it, you're, it sounds like you're tied up in the middle of these two extremes that have happened. And all these cities all communicate. They have these planning meetings. So if right. something affects one city, all the cities make changes based on things that have happened in other cities. So, yeah. Yeah. So, it's, you know, you, you deal with those type of issues. But once your plans are through, and for us, we're building the same house over and over and over and yeah. over again. Once they approve one, they're going to approve them all. Well, it is. It's the yeah. same. It's a, yeah, it's approved. It's just a matter of what lot we're going to put it on. You just change the colors? So we have, uh, well, now we have two designs. We have a, there's certain requirements for a, what we call an infill lot. So between just a regular block yeah. or a corner lot. In mm-hmm. the corner lot, there's different requirements about wraparound porches and whatnot. It's so got have two a, setback requirements, right? Right. It's just, yeah, yeah there's a couple little tweaks. Uh, the garage has to be on a different street than the front of the house, obviously. Yeah. And then there's a wraparound porch requirement. But we still took our house model 
and just added, just turned the garage on the on the rear of the house and added a wraparound porch and made the old garage into a study area. Okay. So it's the same house again. So we yeah. have those two models. It's and we just put them up. Mm-hmm. So well, I mean, once you got something that works, there's no real reason to stop doing right. it. The only time it even proves problematic for cities if are you putting these all right up next to each other? No. And so that's the beauty in this is we really couldn't work this model if they were if it was a subdivision and we were just building out lot by lot. But look like a Tim Burton field, movie where everything's weirdly <laughs> right? identical. I, mean, I guess yeah, they do this. <laughs> Back in the fifties, that seems like what they did. Actually, there was just the same house, but we we have a couple of them just down the block. A couple years ago, that popped up, and it's like one of the, it's like the looking at a mirror in the bathroom, and it's like the infinite mirror where everything's exactly the same. You drive past, and it's like you can only see one house because they're all exactly... It's a nightmare. I couldn't imagine it. Southern California is like all the same fucking house, I swear to God. Yeah. So these like are... like looking through windows right at the back. You're like, what? Come on. You couldn't change it a little? These are on infill lot. So since they've torn down, you know, what seems like random houses throughout the city over the years... Whatever um, was blighted or whatever they took right, back. that we are just building. You know, and they're usually like a couple blocks apart from each other. But we're... We're just going and building on these, you know, different infill lots all throughout. Mm-hmm. So you would never know that the same house is going up yeah. multiple times. Yeah, unless they're right next to each other, you'll never know. Right. So there's, so. I mean, honestly, even the the large builders who are doing whole subdivisions, they usually only have two or three. Yeah, and they just turn a gable here or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. They make mile exactly. modifications. They'll change the the you know, coloring. They'll change the fit. The the rock is different from right. one to the next, but it's actually the same structure. Now house. we do change the outside. Just I. Uh, we just kind of play around with it, you know. So we'll change the siding color, uh, we'll change the roofing mm-hmm. color, but otherwise, it's yeah, they're all the same. No, I mean that makes sense. Now, for the project management, I mean, how 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 different is that? I mean, really, is anything different? Like when you're like how other than the initial part before they, you know, put the house on when they're doing the foundation, which is all brand new. Right. I mean, how different is the actual project management of the construction? I mean, I. So that's not my day-to-day of it, but yeah. as long as your project manager is is able to oversee, you know, multiple job sites at once, I guess that would be the difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially just managing contractors. You're just managing the it, the trade. The maybe it's the excavation guys, or maybe it's the framers, or or maybe it's the siding crew, or whatever. You're just you're just managing those trades to to get the job done, just like you would on a rehab. For us, our rehab model was more one or two, maybe three trades in a house, you know, and they'd be very, very limited. But obviously with new construction, you're going to have probably 10 or 12 different trades between the electrician, the plumber, and whatnot. So there's a little more juggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the know, inspections. The, the are, big pitfall yeah. is the inspection. So if you fail an inspection and you – and since you're trying to do this on a time frame, let's say you fail your um, – I, I don't know. You fell your your uh, basement wall inspection, and I don't. Maybe they were going to backfill like the next day. I don't know exactly. Oh, your scheduling gets screwed. Right. You're the next. Now they can't come out. So now you've got to call them up until it's like a domino of all the guys who are about to and, go do their thing. Exactly. So it screws the whole thing up. So it's a little bit tougher, I think, in that regard. Um, but. And that's where you really, I feel like, need somebody who understands that process. Now, have you seen um, dramatic timeline differences from your expectations to the reality? Actually, shorter. We we were probably <laughs> way conservative in wow. this. We were figuring it'd be eight months to maybe maybe ten months in that mm-hmm. time frame. We broke ground on the last round, the first one on September 20th. The second one was a week after, and the third one was like a week after that. Just what the excavation Because why not do. just jump in when you're about to do something brand new? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, we just don't do one. We'll just do like you know a dozen. <laughs> so no big deal. So we we broke ground and we were, um, 
we're probably about five to five and a half months to true completion, wow. which is way better than we thought. Um, I think we could probably improve that because that was over the winter as well, which yeah. is, uh, you know, I mean, that, that throws in a bunch of challenges. So I think we can improve slightly on that. But either way, I'm pretty happy with those time frames. Um, one thing is nice is the finish work goes so much faster. Well, because everything's been trued up and done correctly. Everything's anyway. done. There's no demo. And then the trades, so the electrician takes care of finished electrical. The plumber takes care of finished plumbing. So basically, you've got to do base, trim, cabinets, countertops, and carpet. You know, lots of tile work, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically it. Well, I also know that just from my anecdotal experience, tradesmen love new construction. It, they love commercial the most, and then second most, they love new construction because yep. they know that everything's you know, open and accessible and doable. There's no hidden surprises. And in general, they seem to be in better moods and more effective when they're there working. Yeah, it's been, I'll tell you what, it's way more enjoyable, in my opinion, than uh, rehabbing. So. so are you ever going to rehab anymore? We are. We're still buying a couple here and there. Uh, just when not we as excited up, about but- it? Yeah, I'm not excited. Do you see that. every one of them? You're like, maybe we should knock it down. <laughs> We're not quite there yet. <laughs> you haven't crossed I haven't over. knocked anything down yet. Now, what about the uh, previous relationships with the city? How did they translate? Because, I mean, you've done – I mean, you only work in really a handful of cities. Right. So you've obviously you're a known entity to these people in the city. How did the relationships you already have translate towards any kind of a beneficial situation as a new so I, I'm sure that that helped us. I guess there's no way to put my finger on that, but I've always felt that having a good reputation with the cities we work in, and even with the contractors we work with, and all that. I mean, they these people know that we're out there to do a good thing, to improve the city, to invest, you know, for ourselves, but also in the city. And I think that that helps with it, even even things you don't know. I, we had little issues come up, like. No one had been building in this city really for the last ten years or so. Yeah. So when we got their permit fees, I said, "Wow, you have to pay a two thousand dollars sewer tap fee, even though you might not tap a sewer. That doesn't really sound right." So the city engineer that I was working real close with said, "I agree. Why don't you write a letter to the council?" So we did. He backed us a little bit. Boom! They dropped that fee to five hundred bucks. So because they don't want to discourage people coming in and starting to do this thing that no one's been doing for but a while. But right there, with the backing of people that that know we're out there to do a good thing, uh, right there, you say fifteen hundred bucks. So mm-hmm. that's a nice little. No, not fifteen hundred bucks because now that's spread across all of your future projects. Too, right, right, exactly. So, so yeah. anyone who builds it here owes me fifteen hundred bucks. <laughs> I think we could set You're up welcome. some kind of referral scenario, right? Just write Josh a check for twenty percent to whatever you say, and just write thank you in the memo line to Epic Property Management <laughs> and Political Borough. <laughs> so, right, well, how does that translate moving forward in the future? Like, I mean, are you now? I mean, have you have, have you gotten involved with the city at all? As far as personally starting to be, because you are a known entity to them. What are what are your options as far as? becoming more engaged with the city and helping to work new policy is that in your world my goal right now is just keep doing what we're doing and as long as they'll let me do that then then i'll continue but it is a lot more political than i thought it would be and i find myself getting involved more on that side of things uh meeting more with city administrators and even mayors and and, you know city engineers and whatnot maybe more mostly just trying to get the projects that i want to accomplish approved Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I've, you know, as long as we can keep a good reputation of always doing what we say and and turning things around and, and putting the investment in that we say we're going to put in, we tend to have a pretty good outcome there. Um, I just I hope that continues because I really don't want to get into politics. What do they want from you? Like, I mean, when you go to them as a builder, what is it that they're looking? Because you're you're not even a builder at this point; you're a developer. What are they looking for? From you as a developer for their city, are you know, they looking for seems, raising tax values? Are they looking for what do they want? I I feel that their biggest concern is typically will you finish the project? They've had builders, quite a few of them, come in and put a basement in and run out of money or something, or for whatever reason, realize the project might not be viable and back out, and Walk then out. they've got a mess. They've got a half built structure. So a lot of their the the discussion and the contracts, especially when you're getting into doing more and more units at the same time, is when are you going to have them completed by and uh, and and a phasing thing? So are you going to do you know six at a time? Are you going to do twelve at a time? How you know they don't want you to get started with a whole group of properties and then just let them come to a standstill mm. somehow. So, which we saw. I mean, we saw a lot of when things went uh, and fell apart. Yeah. You know, ten years ago. I mean, there was. I, mean, I, I remember specifically Macomb Township. There was whole ghost subdivisions that were built, and there'd be two or three out of you know 115 homes that are in a sub. There's two or three of them that are complete with people living in them. Half the phasing is nowhere; it's just weeds. The other half are half built, and you know, I mean, I remember going distinctly into a property in like 2009. And, you know, I was relatively new to the retail side. I wasn't doing it that consistently. And a couple had asked me to sell a property. And I went in and I had people hanging on me and crying because they didn't know what to do. It was a little out of my wheelhouse. This wasn't <laughs> what I was anticipating, you know. So I, I could understand that. I could appreciate that. But, I mean, with the current movement of our market, I mean, that's not as likely at the moment. And did they want proof of funds and things like that? I mean, did they want no, all that? No, I really didn't get questioned too much about that. I, you know, I, I don't know if that was because we had a pretty good background with, with them before we started, okay. or if that's because you had that relationship, into. they knew about it. But they're pretty strict contracts that we had signed. You know, if you don't complete this project in, I, I think it was twelve months, then you will deed the property back to the city free of liens for one dollar or something like that. You know, I mean, oh. they basically, if you don't finish it, you give it back. Wow. Like, all right. So, so there was some pretty serious ramifications for not getting right. the job Obviously, done. they've been burned there before. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. But, I mean, at the same time, like <laughs> I'm sure there'd be some level of flexibility if there was an issue that caused it. I don't think it was totally blanket, right? I don't know. I don't want to find out. Let's not. Let's not even <laughs> worry about it. So they don't make you escrow any money or anything like that? No. Uh, there, you know, like. There might be a don't small Don't give them ideas, one. Jeremy. There, there might be. <laughs> they don't I, listen to this. I don't even, if there is, it's like $1,000. This this actually is a city where you have to, um, and it's not a secret city, by the way. We do this in Wyandotte. I don't want to feel like we're like, having more <laughs> like trade secrets. Um, but uh, In fairness, a lot of people listening don't know where Wyandotte is because so they might not be here. Right? So. Yeah. It's um, in Ohio, right? Yeah. <laughs> it probably is. Um they make you escrow funds for rehabs. I can't remember. I think we might have escrowed like a, I should look that up. We might have escrowed like a grand a house. It wasn't anything significant. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why they would make you escrow something so small. Yeah. So. Well, some some cities want to just see skin in the game. Period. I mean, yeah. if you go to, I mean, I've heard stories from guys going into Birmingham. It's fifteen grand before they even get in the ground there. Right. So I mean, well, it that's the concept the of it. Like on a remodel, there's. Uh, 
they'll make you escrow, you know, maybe half what they anticipate the rehab to cost you on a on a bank on house, let's say. Yeah. And I can see the logic there, but if you're doing a new build from the ground up, what is escrowing a thousand dollars or whatever gonna do? Yeah. It's not like that's gonna be what keeps me going. It seems like a fairly bureaucratic, arbitrary amount that like right. you know, people who don't actually invest in real estate assume sounds like that's a viable number. <laughs> nice round number. Right. Well now Susie feels better. I think that's that's really what it boils down to, right? right? I won. Okay, you won. Here you go. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a lot of moving parts behind the scenes too, you know, and I I know you I know you've had issues with some political things moving on behind the scenes which we won't get too into, but I mean that is uh there are constituencies within a city that have differing uh, motivations for different things to happen. So, sure. I mean, and you were, you work in the world where you're kind of straddling those lines and you're just trying to get in there, make a profit and produce a positive result. That's it. But you also get tied up in some of those, those issues. Right. You, you know? definitely have to try to, you know, negotiate your way through the waters there a little bit. And, and, yeah. uh, you know, the end game is just to get some houses built. How yeah. can that be? That's your end game. But a lot of people within those infrastructures, they have their own, they have their whole own modus operandi going, and you don't even know it's there half the time. So, right. you know, I've, I've seen that it. occur happen in, in local politics myself, and I'm on the periphery. I'm not <laughs> even in it, and it's just like, Jesus, you know, you don't even know what's going on. You see people stabbing each other over stuff, like, good Lord. So, now, as far as building goals, what is the – where does this go? Like, I mean, are you trying to build whole subdivisions? Or are you – you know oh, – Really, where I'd like to get to is actually building larger multifamily, building, um, you know, pick, pick a five-acre parcel and maybe put uh, five or six 24-unit buildings on it all at once, you know. Okay. Uh, that's where I'd like to get to with that, <clears throat> or at least where I initially started um, wanting to get to. Um, there's That's a whole, it turns out, a whole different can of worms when you get into stacking units and fire suppression issues. Uh, we learned a little bit about that with a small little six-unit we're doing right mm. now as well. Um, and fire suppression was something that I completely underestimated. You got to get sprinklers everywhere. You got to get everything. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? I'm, yeah, I'm thinking like lawn sprinklers. I mean, I'm thinking no. this was not going to be a big deal. This was a major, it's a major infrastructure major deal. It's um, basically another alternative utility that's now being installed throughout the entire yeah, property. And, and not only that, but it's not like there are 7,000 fire suppression companies. Like there might be plumbers or electricians. There's like three guys to pick yeah. from. So, and they don't really want to come to your little six unit building because they're mostly working in large, mm-hmm. large multifamily or commercial buildings. And so you don't have, you don't get much, uh, much care from these guys. It was, yeah. it was pretty tough. It's like trying to get a concrete company to come out and just redo one of the slabs exactly. in your, on please, your sidewalk. They're not particularly do one into it. Sidewalk square for me. They're like, yeah, yeah I'll be there. We'll uh, get to that Wednesday three years from now. <laughs> we'll get to that very lucrative deal you got. <laughs> well, so I mean, if you if somebody was to offer you right now, hey, we got this parcel, we want to put a subdivision here. Is that something that you tackle now? For me, I've always been a fan of the multiple exit strategy side of things, right? So we started with the build-to-rent model. It's going to, it looks like, become more of the build-to-sell model, mostly based on those city politics you were speaking of, um, which is fine. I'm okay with building them and selling them as long as there's a spread there. But we have the option still to rent them as key. You know, we, we need that other way out. So the problem with a house much bigger than what we're building now, at least with the numbers we're hitting and the rent rates in the area, 
is that I couldn't build many more square feet and still rent that house out. So there's, there's my, you know, call it plan B now, or mm-hmm. whether that's plan A and selling it's plan B. You got to have a couple ways out of this, I feel. And so you're saying at 1,700 square feet, it's a rentable property, but at 2,500, not as many, the market changes? Right, unless I can build that 2,500 square foot property for a price at which I can still rent it and have a cat, positive cash flow. Okay. And I don't think we can hit numbers at much bigger of a house than what we're doing now, just based on what we've seen going on. Just because the rent numbers aren't going to scale up. If you right, get 1,700 rent- off 1,700 square feet, you're only going to get 1,900 off 2,500 square exactly. feet. Exactly. It doesn't scale directly per you know yeah. proportion to the square foot. And that's the problem with going into a subdivision. So yeah. I'm not saying that there's that's not an option down the road. I won't take it off the table. But but I've always been a fan. I mean, we don't flip very many houses either for the same reason. I've always been a fan of that that long term, you know, build to rent model. Mm-hmm. And if if we sell a few, you know, that's fine too. But I like that option that we can go that way. Once you sell them, you're done making money you from are, them. It's over, and it's a horribly depressing realization. And then it's tax time. Oh God. Really had to do that too. <laughs> now, what about that? I mean, are there any tax benefits from the the cities that you're working in? Do they give you any kind? Is there any kind of tax advantageous? Actually, of being there's an interesting tax incentive in, in the city we're in. They have a, a program which is, I think, genius from a from a city standpoint in order to encourage this. And if you an owner occupant either builds their own house or buys a house from us, most neighborhoods we're building in have an advantage where the owner occupant gets a reduced tax rate for the first 12 years and that, I'm talking majorly reduced like it's a third of what property taxes should be I mean awesome deal. you mean should be as an investor or should be period as uh, even a homeowner? so let's just say for example property taxes on these things are four grand a year I'm just making I don't even know what they are actually as a um, homesteaded rate as a homesteaded rate okay. right I mean I don't I don't know I'm making that up but let's just say they're four grand a year they're gonna give it to you for maybe you know what thirteen fourteen hundred dollars a year for twelve years as an owner occupant not if if we rent these we pay not only that rate but the non homesteaded rate um, we pay the full the mm-hmm. full bill but anyone we sell to that's an incentive for someone buying it hey you've got twelve years of uh, they call it NEZ zone or something reduced reduced tax rate which is I mean that would be a huge you know, what, is, what is the motivation to just get people to move into the new to, to encourage new construction in right, the community to encourage new builds and to encourage owner occupancy in the city which really I guess is a, a pretty I think that's a fairly smart political move on their part mm. so, I mean well there is I mean there's definitely a push from cities to reduce um, their 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 uh, tenant uh, non-owner occupied renter status uh versus their owner occupant status only because historically and uh, numerically there is or statistically there is a uh, a lower property value increase for tenanted areas I would also make that argument that most tenanted areas are going to be a lower end rental. There's very few uh, places I think you could go, especially in southeast Michigan right now, and point out new construction, uh, a build-to-rent model. No, I so, can't. I can't really come up with too many people that are doing. So that I think a lot of what maybe you. lowers property values for rental areas also has to do with less maintained properties. Even then, I think what we do with our our standard rehabs. Um, well, you have Most, a very high bar it's, it's for a different, management. It's a different model. So I, I'd make the argument that I think that raises the values of a lot of neighborhoods. Um, the when, way that you do management. When you, when you bring a property in that's nicer than the other properties, in my mind, that raises the value of the other properties. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we're doing here. 
And and that kind of speaks to the way that Epic's kind of always done their thing. I mean, on the previous podcast, we talked about Epic, but on this one, we have not. Uh, you run Epic Property Management Group, and you've got uh, how many units under management? We're about somewhere in the 330, 340 range, I would imagine. And out of that 330, probably about 200 of those are yours Yeah, that you actually own internally. So you've got a vested interest in the properties that you're managing through Epic. Um as a result, I mean, in fact, from what I understand, the reason you built Epic was that you couldn't get the kind of management that you wanted out of existing companies. You wanted to have the control yourself. Right. So you, you have a very high level of management expectation. So the I, way that you're managing these properties is maybe above what a lot of cities are expecting. I would think so, yeah. I think Thanks. we have a, you know, our goal is definitely to provide a high, higher level of service and we, we, have kind of a three pillar approach here. We have a, you know, the best possible management, the most professional management, the best possible or, or nicest property out there at a fair market rent. And what that creates is, in my mind, minimize turnover or zero turnover, right? That's what you want. Zero turnover because any statistic I ever look at when I run my own numbers, what kills us every single time is turnover. That's our biggest cost by far. Huge, huge amount. Well, I mean, there's also a, a, that's somewhat of a coded term because turnover, minimized turnover means stable tenants. Tenants that don't leave, right? And if it's a stable tenant that doesn't leave, it means that they're a higher caliber tenant. Usually, right? So, or a lot of people, and you know, I guess this is up for debate, but but in my opinion, the there's kind of a paradigm shift. There's a there's a different mindset now amongst people, not just even younger people, but people in general that used to believe that home ownership was the only way to go. Yeah. Right? That, I was always raised that, you know, yep. you go to school, you get a good job, you buy your own house and you retire in 30 years. Yep. But now I think it's so fresh still in everyone's mind, the, the housing crash that I think it's actually, I feel that the feedback we get is it's skewed a lot of people that could very, very easily go still buy a yep. house right now. They choose to rent. Yeah. Sometimes, hey, when something goes wrong at my own house, I'm like, I wish I was renting this thing. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, so I can see the, uh, the draw to that. And I, I think maybe there's a little bit of a shift to that. Mm-hmm. Um, even though people aren't, aren't forced into renting, like I think was the standard mentality in the past. Yeah. Um, I think it's actually something that people are choosing to do more. And it, you are 100% see. right. And the data backs you up on that. Um, right now, not just the millennial generation, but uh, they lead the pack. Uh, the idea of homeownership <laughs> as a uh, sure thing, uh, value-wise, is diminished pretty dramatically. I right. mean, there is... A uh, large contingent, 30 to 40% of millennials at the moment, that have no intention of ever buying property ever. Um, now, I mean, mathematically speaking, they're wrong. And they're, they're definitely losing out on equity. And there's a lot of mistaken assumptions that they've got in, in some of those, those presuppositions. But for us as investors and landlords, I'm not going to complain. Because those people are going to rent for a long period of time. I've had, I have a couple tenants that uh, they're not actually mine. They're for a client that I've rented for. Um, he has a property in Royal Oak that we put tenants in two years ago. Those tenants came from a property that they had lived in in Birmingham for 25 years. And they never planned on leaving, but the guy who owned the property <laughs> sold it. They had to leave because owner occupants took it. They moved to this new property. And as part of their literal pitch, their rental agreement is, you know, we're going to stay here for, until we die, you know, and they're 50 <laughs> year old people in good health. So, I mean, they're going to stay in this house now for 25, 30 years. And the wife is a, 
gardener for fun. The husband is a handyman, so they're going to now they're going to take exquisite care of this property. And this tenant is basically going to buy the house for the landlord who purchased it two years prior. So, I mean, you're you are right in that assumption that that is a trend, and it benefits us. Unfortunately, it detriments them. But I mean, you know, it's also their option it does give them flexibility in a way that. They didn't necessarily have before. Well, it does reduce their risk too, right? If they don't want a foreclosure, they don't want to. I mean, I it think- gives flexibility. Yeah. I would actually make the argument, and I think you can pretty easily that there are far better investments than your primary residence. I mean, I know mine's a great example. I, I've made every uh, real estate mistake in the book with my primary residence. You know, adding on too large, doing too nice of upgrades, and yeah. But for I don't look at it in my mind. It's almost a. Uh, it, I, I look at it as a liability, and I'm okay with liabilities with as long as your your cash flow can support them. But I, I think there's actually a pretty good case to be made that that home ownership, well, maybe it's not a losing investment, but it's definitely not the best investment out there. I well, I agree. I mean, for personal residence, I don't. I'm of the camp that I don't consider my house an asset. Um, in the same way that most people would think of an asset, I think of an asset as something that's producing cash flow. Even though it's got an intrinsic equity in there, that equity is almost speculation because that can flex in and out depending on the market condition. My house does not cash flow. My house is a liability cash flow wise to me because I have to pay for it. You know, so right. I can understand that. However, I mean they they do lose the equity position. So I mean, put it this way: they're they're these people are all taking on mortgages. They're just taking on a mortgage for you and paying it off for you instead of paying it off for themselves. So it's still a liability. They just don't get to keep any of the equity. But they do, in return for that, gain the flexibility of calling you an epic every time the, the toilet backs up. You know, And that's a big thing to a lot of people because they don't yeah. want to deal with this shit. Well, that brings a great question. Literally. We talked to the, a little bit before, but obviously building gives you the greatest exposure to the market. How are you protecting all the possible downsides, if that's even possible, right? So, and that's, and I guess really there's no way to protect every possible downside, right? But, but in my mind, as long as you have a way out, there's an a exit strategy, right? Uh, I'd like to have a couple exit strategies. So, so for us, it's, well, what had started as, and for the first few, um, will be a build to rent model has gone into a build to sell. Which is just a basically way it, that we're forced to flip a property, um, with the option to rent it if we need to, right? And so that's, to me, that's, that's the multiple exit strategy approach. So if we now can't sell or rent the property, it's no different than if I was running the rest of my portfolio and we can't rent units there. Now you're going to look into making sure you have enough cash flow built into those numbers that you can lower rents to get that property rented or whatever it takes. So it really just comes back to just like it does on buying a, a property intended to be a rental. It comes back to getting those numbers, getting, getting the, you make your money when you buy, right? So yeah. getting that property built now for as a cost that makes it have enough room that when we go to lease that property, there's cash flow margin in there. Okay. So when you're building, how do you protect against copper prices going up, lumber prices going up? It's so minuscule um, from what I've seen. And we're only talking a few month period that we're building one of these things. It's really not much different time frame than, than an extensive rehab. So the bigger variables are more of, uh, you know, especially when you're in the learning curve of it, like I would say we still are. Um, how do we prevent from doing stupid shit? 
Um, you know, <laughs> how could we have done this better? You yeah. know, uh, we soup, stupid stuff like we pour all of our footings, but we never poured footings for a back deck. So now we got to come back and pour a couple more footings. You know, or got to bring the truck out twice, and that's we what didn't costs have more our, money, right? Or yeah. hand, you know, or have a guy hand mix it and pay it. You know, or we put all the block in for the garage, but we didn't put the block in for the front porch. You know, like just stuff like that. Yeah. You know, or we put a water meter when we stubbed it in the basement. We put it right in front of the basement staircase. Like stupid. You know, those are the things that are more. Costly. That's specific. That actually happened, didn't it? Yeah, all that, this that, that was a real I'm specific. Up, yeah. That was a real specific oh, it, one. There's, there's more. Yeah, but I mean, there's, it's a learning curve, and that's that's what else we want to know. Oh, People love that shit. Right? <laughs> what else did you blow it? Yeah, how did you screw <laughs> did it you up, screw Josh? Up, These Josh. are all my dad's fault. So, this, <laughs> watch I mean, no, what you say. Thanks, he might listen. He uh, he did an awesome job with. It. He he really has done great. Uh, but it's a lot of you know. It's just a new thing. Like in California, where he's from doing this they don't build they don't do basements so the first yeah. basement we built was the first one he'd ever done yeah so there's a learning curve but oh man we uh a 1500 dollars mistake was doing an exterior insulation thinking now we don't have to do it on the inside it won't be in the way it's a few bucks more not bad we found out we still had to put half the wall on the inside as well three foot blankets so we might as well just done the whole damn thing and saved you know 1200 bucks yeah so stuff like that um we had a bunch of problems with the brick we chose instead of using a modular we used a queen and they were swimming around and um i mean just oh god we had a, a roof issue with the way a valley was designed um little stuff it yeah. just, just it adds up so all these things get resolved over time we had water meters freeze we had um Sump pumps running that popped out of the drains and flooded the basement. I mean, I mean, we've we've messed up some stuff, and we're still looking okay here. So you can you do not have to be a genius to do this. No. Now, have you looked into any like alternative style uh, construction components, like uh, insulated concrete forms for basements, or we we prefab housing? I mean, we yeah we all took a flight out. Well, you to know, see yeah, we went to see the uh, prefab factory, and for us. I didn't feel like I could get, at least at the factory we looked at, which I know was a little bit uh, higher-end model, and that was yeah. definitely what they were pitching, and I can I could see their point. The quality was there. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like we would have the cost savings there to justify it, um, and so I've just stuck to the traditional stick-built model. What is your? What are you getting priced per square foot right we're now? We're coming in right on on the first round. We're coming in at ninety bucks, just right about ninety, ninety and a quarter a square. Is foot. Is that everything with lot acquisition and foundation, That's build and costs, including and... landscaping, with ex- exception of lot? Okay, but the lots are almost nothing. So it's in this particular case, and yeah. But a lot of times, people coming into this, if they're about to do a new build, they might not be getting a lot for nothing. They're going to be paying. Sure, so. but I, I would imagine that's going to be baked into your ARV as well. So yeah. um, the Overall, though, I think the for us the stick built model is is where we're gonna stay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially if you that's what your pop is already used to doing too. That's right? it, and and I think those numbers are going to improve as we get a little bit better at you know maybe either minimizing the mistakes or Once maximizing the efficiencies. Yeah. Exactly. So there'll be a few bucks savings per square. Well, foot how, how much better did you get in the rehab world from the first five you did versus the last 17? Actually, way worse because we just kept over-rehabbing them oh. to the point <laughs> where just like... <laughs> the first one you just first, slid in there my and first put cardboard remodel, walls I remember up. it specifically because uh, actually my dad had come out to help me with that one, my very first one ever, and we did it for like $8,800. Yeah, how much of that work did you do yourself? Yeah, 100% of it. Yeah, that's So right. then as we started hiring guys and then hiring people to manage those guys and they're maybe not quite as efficient as maybe i think so I that, might have that been. cost was there you just you ate it <laughs> well but even you know the the rehabs that uh we started to do have increased in quality and you know yep. we've 
we've kind of once we really solidified that model of the the top of the market quality property um we were just it's like we're in there just making it rain every day at lowe's <laughs> nice <laughs> you get your you got your lowe's people who love you yes. when you show up they roll out the red carpet Not comes for, actually they don't know me at all they know mitch in there though <laughs> mitch is like a celebrity in there i can't even get a pro services hat from him <laughs> I, I lied to myself for a long period of time with renovations thinking that i was having these great return numbers like, oh, I'm making a killing when I flip these houses. I'm awesome at this. But that was because we were doing so much work. And not just me, but me, my wife. I brought my children in, my brother-in-law. We had all these people. Oh, we're making a killing. We're doing these properties so cheap. We're awesome at this. And then you realize, wait, this is all bullshit because I'm just working free. I'm pretending to work for free. The reality is my payday is just delayed until the flip comes out. So my actual cash out number really also is half what my labor rate would have been had I been charging my own rate. So where I had to draw the line on working uh, on my properties was it's probably about four years ago now. Um, we had a decent size, you know, maybe thirty or I don't know how many units we had at the time, but um, we had some painters slated to uh, paint a house over like the Thanksgiving weekend, mm-hmm. um, and they I thought they were kind of pricey on it, anyways. And the day before, I mean, which was I guess Thanksgiving Day, they called and said, "By the way, we're like two weeks out now. We can't come." Oh, and I'm good. like, what? Plus, I thought you were too expensive. Anyways, I'm like, screw it. I'm doing it myself. I've got a sprayer. I'm going to do this. So I, first thing on uh, Friday morning, I get my wife and my handyman, and, and we're all suited up, and I get all the material, and we're over there at, I don't know, 7.30 a.m. We're going to paint this thing. You know, We're going to go to town for the weekend. It ended up being three 14, 15-hour days nonstop. I mean, we busted this thing out. Just but swearing it was, to yourself oh, it the whole terrible. time? It was miserable, right? <laughs> I'm so stupid. I'm never doing this again. This I, exactly. I mean, I'm, paint, I'm spraying black ceilings. I'm just covering Raining it. Raining in your eyes, breathing it in your nose. So nasty. And yeah. so we get done. And back then, I was still doing all our showings and stuff. So the very next day, I'm like, all right, finally, we're done. It's paint. It looks, you know, we saved how much money, which we really didn't, right? But... I go do the first showing, and I shit you not, we come out. The first showing I do, the girl walks through, and she's like, tells her boyfriend very loudly, you know, I could rent this house, but the, it just looks like the paint is so old and terrible. Whoever painted this did a terrible job. And it, it was like she must have known it was just screwing with me, but I'm like, get out. I'm not renting this house You karmic you. devil, screw you. It was so terrible. So that's it. I drew the line. I, I don't think I picked up a hammer since then. Well, that's a good line. I'm still, I haven't totally learned it. I've, I'm about 90% learned, but there's every once in a while I still pop out and get stuck in something that I just, uh, usually for me, it's some kind of a, a scheduling frustration where it's like some minor thing happens. Oh, we can't come out yet. I'm just like, I'll do it myself, whatever. Right. Yeah. And then I swear the whole time and I just get mad and whatever. And I'm, I'm never slope. doing this again. I always seem to forget. <laughs> right. I like getting mad. You know, yeah, I know it's like your favorite me. hobby. It is. Angry Jeremy's good, Jeremy. That's I don't know. I haven't met Happy Fun Jeremy. Where's he at? He never will. <laughs> I killed him. <laughs> He's dead now. Well, dead on the inside. Uh, this, this was awesome. I mean, it was definitely a really good insight. You know, Thank you. And uh, I appreciate uh, you taking your time now at 11 o'clock at night over in Ferndale, far from your home, uh, <laughs> to, to come and talk to everybody about the new constructions that you guys are doing. Um, so if they want to get a hold of you at Epic Property Management, how can they do that? Reach out, email josh at epicpropertymanagement.com. Um, you can contact us from the website as well or just attend. Uh, how about the Renegade Meetup uh, first Tuesday of every month? We're there almost every time. 
We love you guys. Now, <laughs> and, you. And, and if you have a property that you're uh, looking to have put under management, be aware if you are a slumlord with a dumper <laughs> property that you don't want to put any money into, you're going to get rejected, so don't waste your time. But if you've got a quality property and you're in the downriver area, all the way from where to where? We're mostly from uh, 96 south all the way to Monroe area, and then we don't go into the Detroit or surrounding cities. Um, you skip I over that, go all yeah. the way up to Royal Oak? Yep, we we do. We'll hit Royal Oak. We do okay. a couple up there, um, and then uh, west as far as you know the Canton area. So. All right. So if you've got property and you're not going to be a slumlord, drop a line to Josh, and they'll take care of your property and your tenants. And uh, that's pretty much it for this uh, fourth episode. Jeremy, why don't you take it all out? All right, folks. First of all, it takes a lot of time out of Tommy and Josh's day to do this. So let's make it worth their while this is a free podcast right and you're just listening to this so first thing i need you to do is rate and review on itunes let's make sure as many people listen to this as possible and this is one of the ways we can grow the podcast also continue to share the podcast right it's really important and for everybody there's a ton of you doing it for everybody who are doing it thank you every time i post an episode i'm getting a couple dozen shares that's awesome uh, I really appreciate that, and that really does help out, all right? And for everybody who I see share it, and I don't say thank you or I miss it, I apologize. I am thankful every single time. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Ronnie at Secretos. Go to SecretosCigarVault.com. It's very conveniently located in Ferndale. Very good whiskey selection, bunch of good sticks. I'm learning all about cigars from Wonderful. Him. It's Wonderful. a very entertaining place in glorious, fabulous downtown Ferndale. So. They got whiskey. They got wine. They got food. They got cigars. It's a fun time. It's on West Nine Mile in Ferndale. It's awesome. Highly recommend you go check them out. Also, go say hi to Tommy Desmond. Go to TommyDesmond.com. You got to type it in New Jersey. Also, go to OaklandCountyInvestors.com. And uh, check them out there. And thank you for listening to the podcast. I know you could be doing something else. So I really appreciate the opportunity and the time you take listening to this, for sharing it, for rating and reviewing it. And to the next podcast, crush it. <laughs>